0: This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ally. Alley powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated, powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. Now... On to my episode with Liberty DeVito. You know, what's amazing to me. Somebody said,
1: uh, put it this way, like I have had a relationship with millions of people that I've never met. Mm. That that's like was like, whoa, that's really intense because I get it all the time, you know, in emails. If It was because of you that I took up the drums. You are the soundtrack of my life, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, it's like, we were just guys in the studio, just having fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music. Let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You were now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants to study they move, giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. This week's guest is drummer Liberty DeVito, the silent giant behind music icon, Billy Joel. For over 30 years, he was Billy's touring and recording drummer, participating on classic albums like Turnstiles, The Stranger, The Bridge, and many others. You may also recognize Liberty for co-starring in Netflix's music documentary, Hired Gun. In this interview, we sit down to chat about Liberty's upbringing in New York, how he got into drumming, how he met Billy Joel and became his drummer, and lessons he learned along the way. An amazing interview from an amazing guy. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the American rock and roll drummer, my friend, the silent giant, Liberty DeVito. You're making a lot of work, I love volume. Now this feels better. Yeah, that's good. Liberty, what up? What's going on? Yo, Liberty, you should be a rapper, man. You think? You got a rapper name. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost like like Beyonce. Yeah, like, like Liberty. Can, can Beyonce sell you insurance? Uh, Beyonce could Can, probably sell me anything. Well, I mean, if Beyonce wasn't Beyonce, if Beyonce, uh, well, I think wasn't, she'd be pretty cute walking down the street if she wasn't anything. Right, but but I feel like her name is such a brand. Like, yo, I'm Beyonce. Yeah, I'm Liberty. Yeah, yeah, it's a big name. Like, your it par- is a big name. But your, your too parents many, branded you well.
1: But well, you know what? I'll tell you what. My real name is Libertori. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, Libertori, and uh, that's I, not
0: even on on uh, Wikipedia. No, it's not. Yeah.
1: So, so don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't post it. So I was named after my uncle. My my father went uh, had five brothers. They all went into World War II. One okay. didn't come back. His name was Liberty, Libertory. Okay. But they called him Liberty when he lived in, in Brooklyn. But he used to get in fights because the statue in the harbor is a woman. Statue of Liberty is a woman. Got so you. he used to get in fights because his name was Liberty. So when they named me Liberty, all the relatives said that my dad was insane for naming me Liberty because I'd be fighting for the rest of my life, kind of like the boy named Sue. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, what happened was in the 60s, all of a sudden, peace and love and Liberty, everybody wanted to be free. (laughs) (laughs) So it was the name to have.
0: Hey, man, you were branded very well. I'm telling you. it, It worked out in show business. People don't think about, yo, your name is your brand. Yeah. Liberty's like, dude, this dude right here, he's serious. People don't forget it. Uh, if they do, they call me Victory or something like that. you know, like, <laughs> your, your name
1: is Victory. I met you once. No, no. It's, you're close, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we, we mentioned before we got started with the interview that uh, how did uh, I find you? Well, number one, right. I'm, I'm a, you know, my podcast is all about people behind the scenes. Right. And I, I went on Hired Guns. You saw Hired Guns? I, I saw Hired, Hired guns? guns. Okay. And I was like, Yo. My man, my man. And I, there was like a clip where you were in New York. Yeah. I was like, yo, I wonder if he still lives here. Because like I would say 70% of New Yorkers who are from New York live in Florida now.
1: You know what's funny? It's at the end when I'm walking down the street yeah. and I pick the leaf off the tree. You were probably on that block a million times. Probably that, so. What, what block is that? That's was it? Washington Avenue
0: between uh, Fulton and Atlantic. Yeah, yo, so that's my, so when I moved here, I moved to Putnam Avenue and Putnam and Classon. There you go. And I lived there for three years. So when yeah. I think of, like, home, yeah. I think of, like, Clinton Hill. Yeah. Biggie's old neighborhood. Yep. Do you go by St. James often?
1: All the time.
0: Yeah, they're always shooting stuff. I actually did an interview today with um, the guy who plays Tupac in uh, oh, Straight man. Outta Compton and in the new USA Networks. Unsolved yeah, series. Yeah, the Unsolved thing. Yeah, that should be cool. That should be really cool. I yeah. got a chance to interview him today. Yeah. And he was, like, super cool. Super, super, super cool dude. And he's from Brooklyn. He's from Canarsie. There's a lot of people from Brooklyn. Yeah, brother, I like your watch.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I'm a, a big... Chai- old a Detroit.
0: Yeah. I'm really big on watches.
1: Yeah, I loved it when I saw it in the magazines and I told
0: my wife, oh, I want one for Christmas. And she It's a, and also, two of my favorite colors like, Masters green. Yeah, I, yeah. I was actually wearing a green sweater. Yeah. Uh, when you came in, Masters Green is like my favorite color. I like it. It's like it's the good. color of wealth. It's good. This <laughs> <laughs> green makes you feel good, man. Yeah, I could fool a lot of people. <laughs> Wait, so where, where are you from in Brooklyn?
1: Well, I was born in Brooklyn. Yeah, where about? I was born in Kings County Hospital. Where is that? Uh, my mother said it, it was it was called County Line. It was kind of like really close to Nassau County. Okay, like out by um, uh, Kennedy Airport or something like that. You know, okay. close close to that, but in gotcha. Brooklyn. And um, growing up, my dad uh, was a uh, for six months I, we lived in Brooklyn. In a my father and mother weren't married <laughs> when, <laughs> when uh, I was
0: born. You were born a rock star, man.
1: I was born a rock it was meant star. Meant to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so check it out. They finally got married, like like I was born, they got married in June, and I was born in August, so to figure out how long it was before they decided to get married, right? Yeah. So, so I, um, my grandmother would not let my father live with my mother until he got a good job. So me and my mother and my aunt, my mother's sister, lived in a one-bedroom furnished apartment, and it was so small that... My mother used to pull it. it Was it had the the dresser was in the wall, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, old school thing. And she used to pull the drawer out, take everything out, make a bed in there, and I used to sleep in the drawer. But then at six months old, we my my parents went to the beach, Jones Beach. Yeah. On the way home, they stopped in Levittown, and they were looking at houses, and uh, they they liked the house that they saw. It was like a Levitt home, and um, the guy said. Um, you like it? Why don't you buy it? And my father said, oh, "I don't, I don't have money, you know, to buy the house like this." And the um, guy said, "Are you a GI?" And and he, my father said, "Yeah." He goes, "How much money do you have in your pocket?" My father had three dollars. He said, "Give me the three dollars. You bought a house."
0: What? That yeah, was
1: the down payment. It's three dollars.
0: Yo, that's the come up. Yeah, that's the real GI bill. That's it.
1: That's it. That GI existent. three bills. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So. We moved out to Long Island, uh, and um, my my mother wanted him to get a good job, and he got he became a cop. Okay, in uh, in Brooklyn. Okay, and uh, he actually was in the seventy seventh precinct, w- w- which was part of uh, Prospect Heights, and still until the day, <laughs> till the day he died, when I used to tell him where I lived, he used to say, "Oh, you can't go, don't go there. You c- you got to move, you got to get out of there, because it was bad in this in the sixties, and
0: you know." Yeah, yeah, it was bad up until like five minutes, years ago. ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was
1: still scared. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, he had, you know, they have the uh, uh, service revolver that they, they carry around. He used to bring it with him when he come visit. I said, Dad, what are you doing,
0: man? <laughs> you know, it's funny, my, my best friend's dad is a cop uh, or a retired cop, and then his dad was a retired cop. So his grandfather was a retired yeah. cop as well. And the way that they see the world is completely different than totally how we different, see it.
1: Totally different.
0: Because when they associate things that they see, it's with bad or yeah. violence or danger. Yeah. When we got to walk through things like blind and like, hey, life is good. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, it, it, it was such a weird way that he looked at, at the world. I mean, he came out of World War II. He became a, a policeman. He was in the Battle of the Bulge, invasion of Normandy, all that kind of stuff. Wow. You know? And then I grew up in the 60s. You know, my hair was long. I looked like the guys he was arresting. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that,
0: it was tough. Uh, your mom? What did she do?
1: My mom was a housewife. Okay. Um, she was great. My mom was the one that encouraged me to play. You know, uh, she used to cut school to go see Frank Sinatra. She used to say my father was a square. He really didn't know much about music. And he used to go to the movies every time I wanted to practice the drums in the basement.
0: Wow. Yeah, he, but, was she really into arts like herself?
1: She she liked music a lot. Yes, she liked music. She liked fashion. You know, she was always like dressed to the, you know, tea and her hair was always done up. Oh, the good old days! Yeah, she used to change the curtains in her house every season. She would change all the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's not cheap. No, it wasn't. <laughs> that's very expensive. I remember my father taking the credit cards when credit cards first came out. Yeah, and opening up where the garbage belt was and taking a scissor and just cutting them in half all the time. <laughs>
0: So how did you get into into playing music? Well,
1: uh, I asked my father later on in life, why the drums? And he said, because they didn't make Prozac when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, a cousin of mine was selling a set of drums, getting rid of a set of drums, buying new ones. Now, these were like drums from like the 30s. The bottom head was tacked on and a big, gigantic 26-inch bass drum, with a, a scene of a, of a canoe going down a river, and you know that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, they were Mother of Pearl. I mean, I wish I had them now. But um, so he was buying a new set of Ludwig, Red Sparkle Ludwig. So we took those drums, and I just started to bang on them. I've always loved music, like even before I had drums. You know, like the later '50s music and early, early '60s music.
0: Who are some of your favorite artists from that time? Four Seasons. Dion.
1: Oh, yeah. The Orlans. You know the Orlans? No, I don't know the Orlons. Oh, they did a song called South Street.
0: I'm gonna definitely have this playing in the uh, in the background. Yeah,
1: I, uh, I love the, the Crystals and all, all that, you know,
0: the Ronettes.
1: I, I got to play with Ronnie Spector for a long time, too. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That's, that's pretty tight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> put that on the bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was cool. I mean, uh, I started to play drums and, uh, in sixth grade. I joined the sixth grade school band, but I couldn't do the buzz roll for the Star Swinger Banner, and the teacher actually said to me, put the sticks down, DeVito. You'll never do anything with the drums. Boom, my dream done over
0: and what made you keep going with them? Well it wasn't
1: until um, I got I, you know when I went to uh, high school and junior, junior high school and high school were in the same school where, where I lived on Long Island okay right so um, I was walking around once and uh, you know I'm, I, the girls love sports the, the guys that played sports in my high school, so I can't play, I can 't play sports. I can't do it. I tried playing baseball. The ball was hit. I swore it was coming towards me. It landed way over there. That's when I found (laughs) out I needed to wear glasses, right? So now in the '60s, the glasses were like Buddy Holly glasses. You know, really thick lenses. Yeah, like Coke bottles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so here I am walking around the school, and I'm wearing Coke bottle glasses, and I don't play sports, and I'm looking at these other people that are called girls, and I want to meet some of them. Uh, what am I going to do? February 1964, my heroes were on TV. On the Ed Sullivan show, the Beatles were on. And I looked at the, the TV. We saw them in black and white. And I noticed that uh, the Beatles, were, after the, the, the camera showed the Beatles, the, the camera turned and panned the audience. And all these girls were screaming at these not that good looking guys. And then I looked at my sister and her friends and they were screaming at a black and white TV at these not that good looking guys. And I said, screw the buzz roll. That's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to do that, you know, being a band. That, yeah, of course. Know, it makes girls go crazy. And actually, so right after that, I started a band with a bunch of friends because the next day everybody bought guitars and drums and everything, you know. And uh, started a little band, a little combo. We had an instrumental band. And we played at a high school dance. And the next day when I walked in after that, the drums gave me an identity. Like, I became somebody. Like, oh, you would have got to play last night. you were a drummer to played last night. You know? Yeah. So I thought, okay, this
0: is cool. This could work. And were you a good student?
1: Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Like my father says, I didn't mind going to school and I didn't mind coming home. It was that part in the middle I couldn't stand. <laughs>
0: Uh, you fall in love with with playing the drums. Yes. Before the drums and before music, what did you want to be? Well,
1: and, and, <laughs> believe it or not, like in 1960, I thought, you know, maybe I'd be a clown. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was fascinated by the circus. What
0: inspired that?
1: I don't know. There was a song, uh, uh, something about a clown or something like that. And I used to sing and I thought, well,
0: being a clown could be cool. You know, making people laugh, and yeah. no, nobody really knows who you look like. You know? <laughs> well, you're a funny guy. Yeah, well, and you have you have a big personality. That well, makes sense. Yeah, I could be. A, I guess I could be a clown. <laughs> well, I mean, you could be a performer. Like yeah. it, it all goes into performing. Yeah, yeah. you know, I am a performer. Yeah, you're a performer, but you know, well, a clown. I was like, trying wow. to get out of that hole now. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So so um, no, I agree with you. Um, yeah, you need a. My mother always said you. It, she felt sorry for people who didn't have a sense of humor. Yeah. They'll never make it in this world because you need a sense of humor. You need to laugh about things, you know, because usually things that happen to you years later, you're going to laugh about it when, when you talk about it. Exactly. You know, no matter what it is. So, um, I, I looked at the world kind of in a funny way, you know,
0: it's funny to me. <laughs> so I'd be a clown. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I like the big shoes, you know. But did you ever tell your parents that you you know, like, mom, mom, dad? No no, yeah, no, okay. no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. They were like, Man, you better go back to school.
1: Let me tell you, oh, let me tell you something. My report card had
0: more red on it than anything else. <laughs> you know, D's and nothing. You know what? I mean, but I think that goes into like into your career. I was never really that good of a student, especially towards high school. Yeah. I don't like being defined by rules. I break rules.
1: Yeah. Well, you, you're, you're, uh, what is it? The square peg trying to get into a round hole. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
0: Exactly. That's the way we were, you and me.
1: Look, <laughs> we could have been brothers. Maybe we're
0: both, we're Maybe related. So. I, we're related. Well, we're definitely neighbors.
1: Well, you're not, well, we're definitely neighbors. And I am, my mother's side is Sicilian. So, you know, they came from Africa.
0: Well, I always say Italians and black people are very closely knit. Yeah. All about the food, all about the party, all about family. Yeah, Filipinos as well, very similar. Yeah, like uh, Greeks. Greeks, lot lot similarities in the culture. Uh, You say you're in high school, right? Or you graduate from high school? What was your your next step out of high school? Well,
1: even in high school, um, I remember uh, I a friend of mine said you got to see. I was a junior in high school, and uh, the seniors had a band. And in the next day, in school. My friend said, "I saw Ronnie Levine's band. You gotta see them. They're great. They're unbelievably great. Oh my god, you gotta see these guys!" Right? Okay. So I go. I'm with my girlfriend at the time, and um, we're waiting online to get in the club. And because it's an underage club, they didn't serve sort of booze. They just, uh, you know, soda. Yeah. Out in Plainview, it's called the My House. Ronnie, the guy, walks out. And he passes me and he comes back and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. And he said, our drummer's getting drafted. Do you want to play with us? It was like, boom, the next day I was in the band. (laughs) (laughs) He lost the spot. I got the spot. So this is the club now where I'm playing in a band called the New Rock Workshop. And there's another band playing that's called the Hassles. And Billy Joel is in the Hassles. Okay. So this is where I first meet him, but just... Uh, enough to pass him in the hallway and say, hi,
0: that's well, Hi. Cause you guys went to the same high school.
1: No, he went to Hicksville high school. I went to Seaford high
0: school. Okay. One town away on long Island. Okay. Okay. Now you're in this band. Was it, was it popular? Was it doing really well? Oh yeah. We were doing great. I mean, the crowds were coming to people come to see us.
1: And, um, as a matter of fact, two guys that used to come to see us were Doug Stegmaier and Russell Javers, who jumped fast forward. were in Billy's band too. Okay, uh, <laughs> And, um, from that band, Mel Wax was the guitar player, and we played at that club. We opened up for the, a group called the Vanilla Fudge.
0: Okay. Right? An interesting name.
1: It's a, they were huge in the, in the 60s. They did wow. keep me hanging on. The Supremes keep me hanging on, yeah. but really slow. Okay. You know, re- they were really heavy, and like crazy. And somebody had told me, that uh, they were gonna, we were gonna open up for them, and they said they're playing tonight at the Action House a place in Ocean I went down to see them, and I tell you, I I was blown away. They were so good, you know. I mean, Carmine Peace was was the, was the uh, drummer in the Vanilla Fudge, and I just copied him <laughs> immediately yeah. after that. But um, in the meantime, Vinnie Martel, who was the guitar player, liked to jam, so. Me and a friend of mine named Ivan used to jam with Vinnie in the back of their management company. Okay, so but now I'm eighteen. Okay, I'm eighteen years old, still in high school though. Just getting out. I'd say it's sixty eight now. Okay, right. I'm just getting out of high school, and um, what happened was we're jamming with Vinnie Martel from the Vanilla Fudge, and this guy. Uh, there was a band called Mitch Rutter and the Detroit Wheels. Well, Mitch had split from the Detroit Wheels. So the Detroit Wheels came to New York. They had a drummer named Johnny B. Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, they had Socket to Baby, Devil with a Blue Dress, Jenny Takes a Ride. Okay, okay. All that kind of stuff like that. The Wheels come to New York, and they stop at this management company, and they say, we're losing Johnny B. We're looking for a drummer. The guys in the management company say, there's a kid in the back that jams with Vinny. He's pretty good. I get the gig with the Detroit Wheels. So, because they're so out of it at the time, the Detroit Wheels, we do one gig in uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania. We drive all the way out to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and um, the band actually breaks up, but I drive with the band to Detroit, and I hang out and I, uh, with the lead singer. Uh, and, and you're out of high school at this point now? Yeah, I just graduated. Okay. It, I graduated in June. It is now summertime. Okay. Okay. So- I finally fly, fly home, and I'm just hanging out at, ho- at the house doing nothing, you know, and I get a phone call. And the guy's, it's Mitch Ryder's tour manager, and he says, we got your number from uh, one of the guys in the wheels, and we need a drummer. Our drummer got sick. Now, the drummer that got sick was Johnny Siomas, who turned out to be the drummer that played on Frampton Comes Alive, which was... The the biggest live album at the time. Yeah. But so he got sick. I said, they said, we need a drummer. I said, when do you need me? They said, tonight. (laughs) I said, can I do it tomorrow night? My father has to drive me into the city. I still didn't have a driver's license yet. Uh So he drives me into the city. I I get on the bus with the guys. And um, the sax player, when we set up, the sax player says, Look, I'll just give you this, you know, with the stop and with the go. Luckily, I was a Mitch fan, and I had played with the wheels, so I know how a lot of the songs went. Yeah. So am I allowed to say foul language on this?
0: Fuck yeah.
1: Okay. (laughs) So end of the show. Now, you got to imagine
0: this. The
1: bus we're touring on is just like a regular bus that you take from, you know, Clinton Hill.
0: Oh, it's like a city bus? Like a city bus? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was called the, the miko tours or something like that. Was, okay. You know, regular seats and stuff like that. Okay. So I'm sitting in there. Now you got to remember, 1968, my hair is down here. Right? Yeah. Like really long, curly, really long. I'm wearing a I'm wearing jeans, bell-bottom jeans, and I'm wearing a like a Nehru shirt that's green paisley. Yeah. With bell-bottom sleeves. They I'm the coolest guy. I just played with Mitch Ryder. <laughs> so the guys are coming on the bus, the band. He's got a band. It's called the Spirit Field, his band now, right? It's okay. Horn players and everything in it. They're slapping me. Good job, good job. Mitch comes on the bus. I'm thinking, it's going to be so cool. Goes right past me. <laughs> goes sit back in a bus. Comes back up. Sits right next to me. He goes, did you have fun? I said, yeah. He said, did you like what you did? I said, yeah. He said, Would you like to do this forever? I said, yeah. He said, Blow me, and he went back
0: on the bus. <laughs> like, Shit,
1: it's done. It's over. Over. And I see the guys giggling and stuff like that. And then
0: they said, He'll
1: be back. He'll be back. So he came back, and I ended up staying with him like for six to eight weeks on, on this tour up and down the East Coast.
0: So at 18 years old, you're touring.
1: I'm touring at 18 years old.
0: It's like, it's like, it's really amazing that you were able to, like, your career started kind of right away. Like, there wasn't, right away. There wasn't like, a, you know, I was served ice cream for a little bit. No. Over the summers and Nope. no job, no nothing. <laughs> what did what, your parents say about that? Oh, they were excited. My mother loved Mitch
1: Ryder. She, <laughs> she loved it. It was like, you're going to play with Mitch Ryder. Wow.
0: And what did you learn from that touring experience, like being a drummer in that band? was to,
1: my time, when I do a fill, my time has to match when I'm just playing a beat. You know, mm. I, I, that's why I had the problem. I would rush my fills. Mm. You know, being a rock, white rock guy, you kind of tend to do that. But those albums that he, they told me to get, they were so laid back, the drums. That I, That's where I learned, you know, you lay back, man. Wow. And, and you know, you, you keep learning as your career goes on. I remember one guy after Mitch Ryder, one of the, the two of the horn players started a band in Baltimore. So I went down there and lived down there for about three months. <laughs> what a joke that was, though. <laughs> what, 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 what was that a joke? <laughs> it was in Townsend or something like that. It was
0: uh, Towson.
1: Yeah, Towson. Yeah, 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 something like that. There was um, a club called the uh, what was it called Hollywood Park. The building was built in 1910. And you could go. We, we slept upstairs cl- up at the club, and you could take a ball and roll it from one end, and it would go, whoop, 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 and just settle in the middle. Because the, the club kind of dipped and, in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember the bass player telling me the bass player was a funky guy. You know, Walter Bailey was his name. Really cool. Uh, he had just gotten out of the army, and he he felt. The tension in my playing, and he said, "No, man, just just grab the sticks and barely hold them, and just do it, mm. you know." And it's like people say, "Well, you must have some muscles in your arms, you know, because you hold the sticks." No, no, you can pull them right out of my hand. That's how lo- loose you hold them. Wow, you know. So I learned a lot from from listening to these guys, and always being the youngest guy in a band, you know, and always playing with guys that were better than you. That's how you get better. Um, yeah, so. After that I come home and I'm not doing anything. And uh I hook up with this guy, Richie Super. Richie Super um he was in a band called the Rich Kids. Now Richie has had a deal with Paramount Records to do an album. Okay? So we're playing with him, we're working out stuff. We go to Atlanta to do an album. And we do this album with um guys from another band that eventually became the Atlanta Rhythm Section. Okay. So it was my first time ever recording. Oh, oh wow. It was, it was such a great lesson to learn. The, the producer's name was Buddy Bowie. They did all the um, those Stormy and Spooky and those songs from the 60s and stuff like that. So it was really cool living in a hotel room. You know, we're all piled up on each other because nobody's got any money, so we're all in one room. Yeah. And uh, recording in this studio you know, the Atlanta rhythm section. They weren't called that yet, but they became the Atlanta rhythm section. The album comes out, we go on the road. I flip the van and, believe it or not, break every bone in my face. What? Yeah. We're coming home from Cleveland. We just had opened up for Grand Funk Railroad. We're coming home from Cleveland. I'm on Route 80 in Pennsylvania, just coming into Pennsylvania, and I slipped on black ice and i dove into a ditch rolled up a hill and then back down again oh my god yeah and my face hit the steering wheel you know back then no seat belts you know there was nothing so i'm in the hospital super has to super has to pick me up out of the snow and carry me on his back up the hill to get to the highway again
0: well how how was everyone else in the band in the
1: band yeah one other guy Okay. Flip, our, our, um, our roadie, Flip had the
0: perfect name because he
1: was a bit flipped. Was, it, was he okay? He, he saw it coming, and he braced himself with his hands on the ceiling and his feet on the dashboard and rolled with the van.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. So luckily, a truck-to-trailer truck pulled up, <clears throat> saw it happen, and stopped. And because now I'm sitting with the, the front window windshield all over me, sand and, and snow and everything on me, and what happened was, I broke this, this part of my face. All this pushed out. My nose broke, everything. My eye fell into my sinus pocket, so I'm looking through one eye, but blurry, and I can just see the lights of the truck blinking, and I can hear him talking and telling Super, get him in the car and go to the next exit. I will radio ahead. They'll, the police will be there and they'll escort you, because it's snowing like mad. They'll escort you to a hospital. Wow! Went to the hospital and I stayed there for a few days until my, you know, the operation took four and a half hours to put me back together again. One guy
0: did it, you
1: know. And uh, my parents had to come pick me up.
0: And so you, and then you went back to New York.
1: I looked like a freaking monster.
0: I could only imagine like a monster. My head, my head was so
1: swollen that they had to wait like days before they could operate for it to go down
0: a little bit. And like how long how long were you sidelined from like playing your oh, in- Geez, I was sidelined for about six months.
1: That's when I got a regular job. <laughs> <laughs> after I almost after. lost my life. <laughs> because the girl I was dating at the time, we got engaged after that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. She lived through it with me. I thought, okay, this girl's good. We got engaged. And um, but I had a friend. As a matter of fact, I still have a friend. I spoke to him today. Uh, his name was Bob Ray. And he was playing weddings. We went to high school together at this place called the Narragansett Inn on Long
0: Island. And, and pardon me, what was, the, what was the, the regular job you worked? Oh, it was Fowler Mailman. You were a mailman? No. You know the junk mail you get? The big envelopes
1: that uh, fill with everything? Oh, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. this Like circulars? Circulars?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You fill those envelopes. That's what I did. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I did that. I worked for a company that made aluminum siding. The guy was another one of those Vietnam vets, and all he wanted to do was fight all the time. <laughs> you know, like, I can't do this. this is so, anyway, Bob Ray always wanted me to play weddings, you know, go, go to the Narragansett and sit in for him and play the weddings. And I was like, no, there's no way I'm playing weddings. No way. So, finally, he says to me, Look, I told him you're coming. So, he, he kind of made me a deal that I couldn't refuse, you know, one of those. And uh, he lent me his tuxedo. My hair's still long. I'm wearing a tuxedo, his, and I'm using his drums. And I go there, and the guys I'm playing with, there's a sax player that's slick back hair, smoking cigarettes, drinking scotch, you know, that kind of guy, yeah. older guy. A guy playing trumpet and an accordion player and me. And I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell am I doing? I played with Mitch Ryder. This is the end of my career. It's all over. These guys, I don't know how they're going to blow the horns. They're so old. I don't know how <laughs> these guys holding up this. You know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking oh, I'm the greatest because of what done, I did before. All of a sudden, the, the, the trumpet player turns around and says to me, the bride wants to start with a merengue. I said, what the hell is a merengue? Well from that day on it was I learned more than anything else I ever did was at that wedding. So I stayed there for two and a half years. Wow. You play so much ethnic music and music that the people in that party want to hear that you might not be familiar with but you will learn really fast how it goes. Yeah. You know. Uh, like so then when I when I got with Billy Joel and we had the, the the hit "Just the Way You Are." Mm-hmm. Everybody was freaking out, like, "How did you come up with the just the, the stick and brush thing?" You know, and "Just the Way You Are." Well, it's easy. Bossa Nova is stick and brush.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, know? <laughs> you ever read "The Alchemist." Yes, by, by yes. Pablo Coelho. Yeah, and uh, to anyone who's viewing the the interview, if you get the chance, read "The Alchemist." Yeah, and it that scene uh, of you being in the weddings is like when he got stuck in that town yeah. and he was like selling glass you know but through that experience of selling Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds Recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass. down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20 get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In glass, where he thinks, like, I'm not doing anything. Right. The- like, what the fuck's going on? I'm kind of, like, wasting time. Right. That's when you learn your but, greatest lessons.
1: Yes, and, and, and that takes you to the next thing. Exactly. It, You've got to get on
0: the ride somewhere. Yeah. To go to the next spot,
1: you know. And, and I eventually got all the guys that I was playing with, you
0: know, rock and roll in that band, in the wedding band. Wow. Yeah. And so that was two years of, of you doing weddings. Two and a half years. Also, two, two weddings are great because they're consistent.
1: Yeah. They're every Saturday. Well, it was uh, you would you would have a Friday night, sometimes a double on a Saturday and a double on a Sunday. Mm. Now I know oh, you ba- were making money. <laughs> well, I know bands today like they make anywhere from seventy-five hundred dollars to twelve thousand right. dollars to play a wedding. We were making thirty-five bucks a piece, union scale.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, but <Well>, it's consistent.
1: <laughs> and it was the seventies. So it was seventy-one or something. I had to join the union to go to do the weddings.
0: You know, after the wedding, part of your career, how did you? You know, link up with Billy. What's the story behind that?
1: Well, I was playing weddings. I had there was a, we had a band called Topper, myself, Doug Stegmaier, Russell Javers, and this guy Howie em- Howie Emerson. We were doing all original material, all Topper stuff, you know. And um, we were playing in bars, but it, we played blues songs too, and we were playing reggae then too because we discovered reggae was like, whoa, <laughs> this is really cool. Let's do this. Yeah, and um, so. One, uh, Billy was living in LA making albums with studio musicians and going on the road with other musicians. He needed a bass player. He called Doug Stegmeier, who was in Topper, because the sound man knew Doug from high school, to okay. fly out to LA, play with Billy on the Street Life Serenator tour. Now, that's one album after Piano Man. Mm-hmm. So there's Piano Man, Street Life Serenator. He's, he's out. Doug goes out there. During that tour, Billy tells Doug, I want to move back to New York. And I want to get a bunch of guys to play with me. I want the same guys to play on my record that go on the road with me. And I want a New York style drummer. And Doug said, you know the guy, you've met him in my house. Yeah, (laughs) You know, so um, I still had an audition for Billy when it came back. And um, because there's other guys that wanted the gig. And so I learned all his songs, and it's funny, you know, because my mother loved R&B. She loved the Franklin, Sam and & Dave, and all that kind of stuff. She really loved Jackie Wilson, was one of her favorite artists. Jackie's awesome. Yeah. And um, I was practicing to Billy Joel's songs downstairs in the basement of my parents' house, and my mother came down, and, and she goes, you're going to play with that guy? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah.
0: Tough critic. Yeah. Tough critic. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, I do the audition. I play the songs that he that he plays in his show. He was impressed, and then he said, "Look, I'm making a new album, and uh, I'm going to run by run you by some of the songs that I'm going to do on the new album. And see where you come up with." And he was pretty amazed at how fast I caught on and came up with stuff. He didn't know for 25 years that Doug Stegmaier had given me a tape of all the stuff he was going to do on the new album before I went to the audition. That's amazing.
0: The cheat code. Yeah. Shout out to Doug. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So um, we, the three of us went in the studio.
0: Okay. And what what studio did you go to?
1: Now Jim Gersio is producing Billy. Jim Gersio owned Caribou Ranch out in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Okay. And he produced Elton John and Chicago. Okay. So... He takes, Elton John had just fired Dee Murray and um, and Nigel Olsen, drums and bass. Okay. He sets up Billy with those two guys in the studio. Billy hates it, fires Jim Garcia, comes out to Long Island, stays at the Howard Johnson's in Westbury, and we go to Hempstead in Ultrasonic Studios, me, Billy, and Doug, and record the turnstiles. Some folks like to get away Take a holiday from the neighborhood Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood But I'm taking a greyhound on the Hudson River line I'm in a New York state of mind we're listening back to some of the tracks billy says i really like a guitar here and me and doug said well we know guitar players so eventually all of the band topper that we had became the billy joel band wow with the uh uh, addition of richie canada who played saxophone
0: and and what was it what is this experience like going into the studio you know for the first time you know, with Billy? And I ask this question a lot in the podcast of do people understand the moment that they're in? Uh, I think that's a, that's a key thing to success, understanding the moment and being present of in the present of, okay, this is an amazing opportunity. Did it feel like that at the time? Yeah, it did feel like that
1: because he was a great songwriter and he sang great, played piano, you know. Amazing. It, it was Come really on. good, Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah. But, you know, recording is like an out-of-body out of experience because you are the guy now that's playing. And then you stop and you go in the control room and now you're the guy that's listening to the guy that was just playing. Mm. And, it's, and you're critiquing that guy. Mm. you know So it's like really weird like to, wow, yeah, that's pretty cool, you know because it, you, it feels good when you're playing it. You can tell when it's not right. And when it is right, when you feel it. Yeah. And then, but then when you listen back, it's like, yeah, that's good.
0: And, and did you know, like, going back, listening to those, to the songs um, on the Turns Out album, that, wow, like, these are classics?
1: I, well, I knew that New York State of Mine would be a classic. Yeah. And Angry Man is kind of a, a, a it was a, a production, you know, like it had a beginning and a middle and an end. You know, people don't know that you play the beginning first and you stop, and then you do the middle, then you stop, and then you do the end, and you put them all together. You know, See, from Italian Restaurant on the Stranger was done the same way, it wasn't played all the way through at once.
0: And, and like, how much, how, how long did it take for you guys to finish up the turnstile record? Oh,
1: turnstiles took two seconds, you know, like wow, it, that it was, quick, it was done really fast, yeah, really a, fast. A week, two weeks, uh, the basic tracks, probably. Wow,
0: yeah, that is you really know, what
1: you know, which one took, um. The shortest was this, the album, Innocent Man. How and long was that? That, we would, that was six weeks done with the basic tracks. Done. And when Billy comes in the studio, will we go into the studio? Yeah. Okay, we're going to start an album. He only really has two songs. He's got ideas, but only two songs that are complete at the most.
0: Well, and how does that process work? So he, he, he writes and arranges and... No.
1: He writes. He doesn't arrange.
0: And, and for the audience listening, what is the difference between writing and arranging a record?
1: I know, but for... A song is copywritten. The words and the music. Not the arrangement. That's why uh, when somebody else does a song and um, changes the arrangement, yeah, they don't, they don't have to pay the artist for the arrangement. They pay the artist because he wrote the words and the music. Got you. The chord changes. Got you. But not the arrangement. That's your arrangement. Got you. Okay. You know?
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So he would write the words and music, and the band would, and the producer would do the arrangements. You know, like he would, and he would have bits and pieces. He never threw anything away. Like he would have an idea. Like a, um, he, he had a thing that went, <laughs> and then it went to. Right. Yeah. Well, the became Uptown Girl. Whoa. Ah. And the became a song called "Blonde Over Blue" on the River of Dreams album, the last album he did. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So he never throws anything away.
0: And so when you when you guys finish that turnstile, you know, record. How did that? That feeling feel for you.
1: Oh, it felt great. It was like, this is cool. Because then we were going on a road because he had a contract with Columbia Records. So now we're going to go on the road. We made 400 bucks a week. For, a far cry
0: from the wedding days. And
1: I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. And I don't remember getting paid to do the record.
0: Wow. Yeah, but but you, got, you got points on the... No. No? No. no? Uh-uh. So do, do uh-uh. session players get typically get points on... No. So that you get paid. You're you're
1: work for hire,
0: really. Got you.
1: Unless it's worked out and you talk to the guy and say, look, dude, I helped you. You know, like... uh,
0: Like put together and build the track, like the the song.
1: Yeah. Like uh, if somebody came up with... When when Rick James was in the studio and he had this song called Super Freak and it just went... uh, She's a very funky girl. You know, but if somebody said, "You know what, it should do it," she'd go boom, 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 boom. right? And then if he said to Rick James, "Look, I gave it a line. Do you think I can get credit for, for as a writer?" and Rick James could look at him and go, "No, you're fired," or "Yeah, yeah, I think so." Wow. You know.
0: the music industry is very, very. That's one thing that uh, you know. One reason why I even started the podcast to begin with is to uncover those secrets about the music industry because a lot of folks don't know that. Oh, yeah. You know, or, or even uh, in, in the higher gun segment. Like, a lot of people don't understand what goes into the, the X's and O's uh, of being a higher gun musician. Were, were you always uh, uh, had the urge to feel like, you know, you wanted to, to be heard or, or people to know what you've contributed? Well, we thought we, thought we were a band.
1: At least me and Doug and Richie, yeah, we thought we were Billy Joel's. We were the band. Billy, me, Doug, and Richie were a band, and we were going to share and everything. Well, that didn't quite work out. No, because he was signed to the record deal. A lot of uh, groups like that. I think Bon Jovi, uh, John Bon Jovi, and um, uh, Richie Sambora were the only two signed to the record deal. Wow, so like you know, side guys. Wow. You know, and it depends on how they're, they're treated, how, they, how much the lead guy values them.
0: Do you remember your first show with, with Billy?
1: Yes. It was in, of uh, course, well, after we recorded Turnstiles, we did the overdubs, funny, at Caribou Ranch, where, where Jim Garcia, he owned Caribou Ranch. Yeah. After Billy fired him, we did Turnstiles. We went to Caribou Ranch to do the overdubs and the mixes were done out there. And we played this place called The Good Earth in Boulder, Colorado. It was a, like a bar. It was the first show ever.
0: And what was that like?
1: It was pretty exciting. It was pretty exciting. A little stage, you know. But we were used to that, playing little places. It was when we started to get bigger places that it was like, you know, a little bit of a stomachache. The worst thing we did was, for a while there, we opened up for the Beach Boys with no billing at all. And... Uh, You know, the lighthouse lights would go out. You'd go up on a stage, and people are going nuts. And then the lights come on, and it's you. It's not the Beach Boys, and and you could (laughs) you you could actually hear the crowd go. Oh. (laughs) And then you get hit in the head with a beach ball or something, or frisbee.
0: (laughs) Like, oh, Oh, that has to be the worst feeling ever. And the Beach Boys were really nice to us,
1: you know. Oh. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and then Billy was getting compared to Elton John all the time
0: Oh my goodness you know? <laughs> it, yeah.
1: was, it was horrible until somebody, an agent said Look, you guys should be playing small theaters and stuff
0: like that Instead <laughs> of opening up for these huge groups at the Chicago Stadium mm. Also too, because you, you, you've you won a couple of Grammy Awards t- as well Yeah, but that wasn't until later yeah, because because like, when you when you win a Grammy award, it's for the, the participation of being on on the album as well. Well,
1: it... there's there's two ones two Grammys that you want to win. You want to win Record of the Year and Song of the Year. Okay. Song of the Year goes to the guy who wrote it. Okay. Well, the people who wrote it. Yeah. Song that that Record of the Year involves everybody that was involved because it's a great record. Yeah. Yeah, just you all would. record of the year, Fifty Second Street. The next year, won album of the year. I don't have any Grammy stuff.
0: So. That's amazing. We just, we just.
1: I, I had to pay fifty bucks each to get a piece of paper that said I was on
0: Grammy award winning stuff. I'll take it. I, I paid fifty. I pay fifty bucks for it. <laughs> yeah. You get one if you prove it. <laughs> well, well, I think that's the like, that's the beautiful thing about about music. You know, it's something that lives forever. Like you can't ever take away your drums on those tracks. No, they, they are. Like, you, they are there. Like, you are eternal. Like, music is an eternal thing as long as the earth is rotating. You know, yeah. that has to be a very, you know, I can only imagine being, um, you know, I don't have any kids or, you know, your grandfather. To be able to have my voice or my instrument or my talents live on long, 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 long time.
1: Yeah. Like, well, you're still living. You know, it's amazing to me. Somebody said, uh, put it this way, like, I have had a relationship with millions of people that I've never met. Mm. That that's like was like, whoa, that's really intense. Because I get it all the time, you know, in emails. If It was because of you that I took up the drums. You are the soundtrack of my life, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's like, we were just guys in the studio just having fun.
0: What was your favorite show that, that you can remember? Um...
1: Well, we did... So many different. Like I love Australia because it, you know the country was beautiful and and the people were beautiful. Um, I loved playing um, in Philly. Philly was a wild crowd. They were great. New York was a great crowd to play. You're home, so you got to play harder. Yeah, because they're like looking at you like this.
0: Yeah, uh, dude. New you York know. is the hardest place oh to play. Boy. It's tough. You know, you, you give a, a great show in New York when they don't boo. Yeah. If they don't boo, you You're did a fine. great job. You're <laughs> No,
1: and we did shows um in 1979 we went to Cuba and played. Uh there was a, a an exchange thing that Columbia Records did with the Cuban government where 150 Americans went. Uh we went Tito Puente went uh Weather Report went mm. uh Stephen Stills, Bonnie Bramlett, people like that. And um for a weekend, 5 days it was For every American band, it was a Cuban band that played. American band, Cuban band, American band, Cuban band. And um, that was an experience, to see that country at that time. Whew. Man. Broke. But, yeah. Broke. But the great thing is, is that I meet a lot of pe- kids now that were at that show, that when Castro said, you know, get on the raft and you can leave. Remember they came over yeah, and a yeah. lot of people died. Yeah. just sunk. They made it, and they, some of them were at that show. Wow. And they, they told us, you know, like, what happened after we left, how some guys got arrested because they took T-shirts from us, and, you know, we were watched all the time. That was intense. And then in 1987, we went to the Soviet
0: Union and played there. How do you juggle family with, with you constantly being on the road? How does that work?
1: Well, let's put it this way. I've been married three times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. A, I dropped a few balls here, and I, I,
0: I, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't juggle family. A jugg, uh, family juggled me. Uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it tough. It, it's tough. I mean, uh, my daughters. I got four daughters. The oldest one is 37. And the youngest one is going to be one on Saturday.
0: Wow. Yeah. So it's 37. So 37, wait, wait You just you just had a daughter.
1: Yes. Wow. So 37, 33, Forever 29, Young baby. 1.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, thank you.
1: Thank you. Yeah. It's very exciting now because back then when the other girls were born, it was make an album, go on the road, make an album, go on the road. Yeah. And now I'm experiencing things because my wife works. You know, my wife is 42. And so she had to decide if she wanted kids or not. And I always said, kids are the greatest thing you can have. Yeah. You know. And um, so she decided, you know, time was ticking away, and it was time. So she wanted a baby. And I said, sure, let's do it. And now I stay home. I'm the Manny. You know,
0: hey, I used, to be a, I used to be a Manny. What? I was a Manny for, uh, for one year in Greenwich, Connecticut. How'd that go? Dude, you know, what it, you know what it is? Liberty, it's one of those things in life that you're just grateful that you had the experience. Yeah. Like, like I don't know how many black rappers could say, hey, you know, before I made it big, right. I was a nanny. And also, too, it's good to see, it was an a opportunity to see another way of life. And, and Do you have children? No. Okay, so you know now yes. well, what it's going to be like. Well, yeah, well, well, the good and the bad, right? Because I yeah. was able to experience, you know, these folks who came from the 1%, oh,
1: yeah.
0: right? So I was able to see the positives. You know, I come from single-parent home. You know, I mean, it's very normal. I wouldn't... Oh, not not poor, but not rich. And hey, hey, I'm an I'm an example of my parents staying together.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't say it's any worse or better, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's one of the things. Everyone's situation. No situation's good, and no situation's bad. Right. It's about how we perceive it. Yeah. And so for for me, I would imagine these these kids have all the opportunities in the world uh, because they come from the one percent and they have a lot of money. But I realized from that experience of being a nanny of like, dude, no, they have a, their own their own struggle. Like they don't know what the real world is like. They right. don't have a diverse group of friends. They don't. Um, they're very sheltered from things. They don't know what adversity is like. Right. Um. So they're they're hurting in a whole, totally different way. Um. And I learned a lot from that experience from from being a nanny. Connecticut, so, huh? Connecticut, man. And it, it was crazy because they. Diana Ross was my neighbor. Tommy Hilfiger was my neighbor. Like I I lived like on the the whole bottom floor. Uh, was wow. oh the whole bottom floor I had to myself, and it was, like, overlooking the pool. I mean, I had like, a, the, I call it the minivan. van. I had a minivan, and I would pick the kids up from school. I would make all the breakfast, lunch, and dinners during the summer. I would take them to camp and take them to the park and pick up their friends. and Wow. It was, like, an all-day intense thing. Like That's wild. And then I would come to the city and just Those blow kids- all my money. <laughs> like, I would just find the nearest. Because the thing about this, too, and something that I, I another thing I learned while being a, a man, he was the appreciation for stay-at-home moms, the appreciation for teachers, the appreciation for people right. that, that work intensively with the youth. Exactly what I'm experiencing now. Yeah.
1: Like, I, if, if I didn't hate my ex-wives so much, I would, like, post it on Facebook. Like, I sympathize with with mothers, yeah, I can't stand my ex-wife. So <laughs> let me tell you something.
0: You think I'm here to do this interview? I just wanted to get out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> you like, let me talk to my wife. I'll be right there. There was no hesitation. There was zero hesitation. You know, what, let me just like check with my wife, and I'm there. And you're like, you know what? <laughs> I'm fifteen minutes early. <laughs> Hey, man. <laughs> and I went and got something to eat before I came here. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I guess, how did your life change, you know, from after after being on the road with Billy? Like, how was your life? Did, no. did you feel?
1: Well, I mean, you, you don't get fired from a, a gig. You're just not asked to do the next thing. Yeah. that That's what it's like. And you don't get no phone call. You don't get anything. And that
0: had to be a humongous transition, though, from having a lifestyle oh, of 30 years. I lived in the bubble for 30 years. Yeah.
1: I, like you said... You know, these kids live in a bubble. Yeah. You know, they don't know anything about the outside world. They don't know, you know, you get in trouble with the police and you, oh, oh, you play with Billy Joel. Yeah, Oh yeah. go ahead, go, go, you know. Yeah. Anything like that. You're in trouble. You meet somebody in the street they want to beat you up and then somebody says, he plays drums with Billy Joel. Oh, man, brother, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy living in that bubble. And then that bubble is gone. And then all of a sudden, here's the real world, you know. It's like when you were able to, like, run your credit cards up really high, buy anything you wanted to, and then all of a sudden there's no more money. And it's like, uh-oh, now what do I do?
0: Yeah, yeah. H- how'd you cope with that? Well, I, I have to tell
1: you that you, if you saw a hired gun, you know that Doug Stegmaier, when he got cut, he actually killed himself after a few years. Yeah. He just couldn't take watching somebody else play his parts that he developed. The guy was getting paid on stage to play something that Doug came up with. so Doug couldn't deal with that. I was lucky enough to have family as a, as a support. And then when I wanted to get back on my feet again, I, I had a friend, uh, Wayne Blanchard from uh, Sabian Symbols. And uh, I used to always say like, you know, uh, the billing would be uh, Liberty DeVito, former drummer of Billy Joel. And he said to me, he goes, no, no, no. You are not the former drummer of Billy Joel. You are the drummer that Billy Joel chose to create those unbelievable hits and those unforgettable tours. That's who you are. And once I got that handle, it was like, yeah, that's who I am. Yeah. Like like you said, that music will never die. It'll always be around. That record is always there to play for generations to come. And it's amazing to hear on the radio. It's still on the radio, you know, and it's bigger now than it was back when it was out. It's crazy.
0: Crazy. And, and, and how does it, when you hear those records, like, how do you feel? I feel like Billy's getting richer. <laughs> <laughs> well, but does it bring back, like, good vibes of nostalgia well, and happy times? I, I and... make
1: myself immediately go to the studio when we recorded them, because there was great times. We had great times in the studio. Great times. That was my favorite thing. Yeah. yeah. And touring.
0: Touring was, Australia,
1: cool. Australia. was cool, but recording is like, yeah, we did it. And when it becomes a hit, it's like we did it. I mean, we everything became a hit. I it's funny. The first gold albums and platinum albums we got, it would say The Stranger, Platinum Album, for the sale of one million copies. After I had the falling out with Billy. I got a little angry and the Sicilian came out of me and I smashed a bunch of albums. So when we sat face to face with our lawyers to try to come to some kind of agreement on like royalties that I was supposed to get, internet royalties and stuff like that, yeah. they said, well, what else do you want? And I said, can you replace my albums? And it's like, now where the old Stranger Gold album said, one million records sold, this one says 10 million records sold, yo. Know? Mm. It's like the amount of records, the greatest hits album, like twenty twenty-four million copies sold. <sighs> know
0: like sick. Hey, is there something that you that you wish you had known about the business side um going into it if you could go back in time? Oh god, I wish I I wish
1: I wish I knew that. Friends can be friends, but you really need to read the contract.
0: (laughs) That's like an amazing quote.
1: Yeah. Because when I went back into Billy, um, I I was suing him for royalties that I thought I was due from... uh, Because he had released the 25 years of The Stranger. Mm -hmm. And in that box was live from Carnegie Hall, which I don't think we got paid for, the recording. Mm. Right? So I was kind of suing him for that, and the, his lawyers found a copy of the contracts that we got to do the Bridge album, which was nine or ten albums after the first album that we did, mm-hmm. and in that, there was one line that said, I give away everything, the rights to everything from this album back to the beginning. And you don't read it. You just sign it. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. they keep saying, the managers say, oh, it's the same thing as last time.
0: Wow. You know, and
1: you trust those, these people. Right. And now you know that they're watching out for Billy. They're doing their job. That's their job to do that.
0: What was the quote again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Friends can be friends. But read the, read the contract. But read the contract.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know.
0: And, and, and so how did you end up being on Hired Guns? What's that? H- how'd you end up uh, being on *Higher Guns? How'd oh, that happen?
1: Uh, getting in the movie? Yeah. Oh, oh, God. Well, the movie was... Um, the- Fran Strine, who was the director in the movie... Okay. ...was the videographer for Five Finger Death Punch, that band that Jason Hook is in. Jason Hook and him were on the bus once, and Jason said, I want to do a documentary. And Fran said, what do you want to do it about? And Jason said, me. Because Jason came from uh, like Mandy Moore and stuff like yeah. that, playing and then it became this heavy metal band. It's like insane. Yeah. And uh, Fran said, "Well, I think you should do it something a little more interesting than you." And uh, so they decided to do it about hired guns. You know, guys that have played with the, the main act, and you're just a side man. And Jason said, if we're going to do that, you have to get Liberty DeVito because he's played with Billy Joel for 30 years. He was a hired gun for 30 years, and that's unheard of in this business. So I was the first one to get a phone call. And the most disappointing thing about hired gun is what I'm wearing because I get phone calls all the time to do things like that. Yeah. And they never pan out. They come over, they do an interview, and then it kind of goes away. So I thought this was gonna be another one of those. So I had these shorts on and. <laughs>
0: right. How not you, Dari? Everybody else is wearing
1: leather jackets. Yeah,
0: yeah, they did. Well, know?
1: Like, like, and I'm sitting in my living room, like bouncing <laughs> on my rocking chair, pulling leaves off of trees. And, like, so... I saw that when, I, when I, we went to the preview, and I saw that. I'm like, damn, why did I wear that?
0: <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the whole vibe—we were very relaxed.
1: And it's on Netflix and everything, you know.
0: It was huge. Yeah, it's huge. Like, yeah. I, the minute I came, when I was like, "Yo, I gotta watch this."
1: Yeah, I, I went to the Nam Show last weekend um, out in El- uh, Anaheim. Yeah, you know, where they show all the new equipment. Man, I couldn't walk ten feet without somebody stopping me and talking about the hired gun.
0: Yeah, and, and, and how does that make you feel? Like I,
1: I'm famous again.
0: But- <laughs> yeah, yeah like, how does that make you feel? Like that you're being, you know. Reappreciated again in the music community.
1: Uh, the best thing about the hired gun that I really appreciate is that we got to tell our story. Nobody knew, you know, people like like people didn't know that we arranged the songs with Billy. Like Billy walked in the studio and did everything.
0: Oh yeah, like literally. um I make music, and I'm still just in awe of how songs are made. Yeah, and like learning how, like, oh, like, that's how that writer was a part of this or, you know, this yeah. drummer was on it or, like, that guitar player didn't play on the record that I thought was on the record. Right. Yeah. There's it, a, a whole another side of the music business that people don't know. And I think because of technology, because of, like, you know, things like Netflix or Amazon or Hulu yeah. and the need for content or podcasting, hence, you know, yeah. why we're here at this very moment, like, people are now want to uncover those truths about yeah. things they love. Well, I, I
1: still am amazed at some of the stories that I hear. Like, I heard when um, Puff Daddy, we was called and when he did um, the thing about Biggie.
0: Yeah, song. no, I, I've been missing you. And he
1: used the Sting song. Sing record, yeah. Well, I saw an interview with, which is then the guitar player from the police. And he said that Sting had been... Copeland, Copeland. Yeah. Stuart. No, Stuart, Stuart Culp is the, the drummer. drummer. Andy Summers. Yeah, thanks, Here we go. Okay. Um, Pup Daddy wanted the rights to the song. Sting did not give him the rights to Every Breath You Take. He kept the rights. Sting gets money from that song. Right. And the funny part is, is that the only part from that song that they used was the guitar part.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: that's the only thing he used, and Andy Summers didn't get any anything. any money. No, from that remake, Sting got the money.
0: Friends can be friends, and Sting.
1: <laughs> and, and, and when Sting wrote "Every Breath You Take," he walked into Andy Summers and he said, "I wrote a great song, but you have to
0: make it sound like the police." Wow, friends can be friends, but read the cut. <laughs> Well, Liberty, thank you so much for being here on the show, my this man. This was gas, man. I really appreciate you. Oh, you should get your own podcast. Yeah, I, you, you should.
1: Yeah, well, well, I'll have a one-year-old on my
0: lap. it get you too. out of the house. It will. <laughs> <laughs> You're the man. Yeah. I appreciate you, Liberty. Thank you. Thank you. So great. Thank you so much to the silent giants behind this episode of the silent giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Byrd of NBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at NBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. time.